Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Today is Friday, July 9th, 2021, and this is episode 25B. Today is a big day other than this podcast being out uh, because we have Black Widow is up on Disney Plus with premiere access as well as, I understand, in some theaters. Um, in places where theaters are still a thing. So I myself will be watching it at home tonight over Thai food and wine because that's how we do things in this house. Um, And we will be discussing that on the podcast episode coming Monday, which I believe is this. It is the 12th on Monday is when we'll be discussing Black Widow. Also today, The Bad Batch, also on Disney Plus with regular membership access. Uh, This will be episode 11 is up tonight. I have been digging the heck out of this series. Um, I think episode 9 has been my favorite so far, but we're definitely getting up to like a crescendo. We're, We're getting things building up to... Um, I'm not sure how many episodes are going to be in it, but I'm excited to watch the episode after Black Widow tonight. Uh, and then again, I will discuss that on Monday's episode 26A. For this week's Friday B episode, we are going to start things off as usual with the comic book pick list, going over things that I found good or noteworthy from this week's comics. Um, I'm going to do things in order of how much I have to talk about them slash preference. Um, so we're going to be starting with Wonder Girl number two and ending with Avengers number 46 with all kinds of stuff in between. So just stick around and we'll get through that. After that, we do have, of course, Loki, episode five, uh, appropriately titled Journey into Mystery. We have a long discussion about this episode, extremely enjoyable for a lot of reasons, and leaves us with a world of speculation, which we will be going over as well at that time. Finally, the episode is going to wrap up. It's an extremely Marvel-heavy episode. What can I say? It's going to wrap up with discussion of the What If trailer. What If is also coming on Disney+. Plus. There's a lot of Marvel shows coming on Disney+. Plus. Let's, be, let's, let's take a moment and be appreciative of that for a second, because... It's pretty cool that we're living in a time where comic book properties are being regularly transferred into live action media. And that is something that 20 years ago, nobody would have believed what could possibly happen and be as successful as it has been. So just I'm just taking a moment to appreciate that and be grateful for that. But we will discuss for just a little bit the What If trailer. There's a lot going on in that, so it's not a whole lot of specifics, uh, but just a general overall of what to expect from that show. Um, my social, if you would like to find me online, you can get find my website, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. You have to have the Weebly in there because I don't pay for it. Uh, yet someday, hopefully won't that be exciting. Um, I also recently set up a Patreon. If you would like to support this podcast in any way, that is right now the best way to do that. Aside from listening to it and sharing it with your people who you feel may also enjoy listening to it. Um, if you would like to not listen to it, but still keep up with it, I do have my podcast notes, things that I, uh, mark down to kind of keep myself on track through the week for each podcast episode. And I post those for reading on my website blog, again, sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. I also have a YouTube channel where I post uh, this podcast as well as toy review videos. Um, Haven't done one of those in a while. Hoping to get that done soon. I've been very busy recently, which has been kind of crazy. Um, but, uh, if you would like to support this podcast, like I said, the best way to do that is on my new Patreon. 
Um, my I don't really have rewards necessarily for that. The thing that will be happening is I am designing stickers. Um, this podcast is live from Yancey Street, and so you will be the Yancey Street regulars are the people who listen to the podcast or support the podcast uh, through the Patreon. So I have some stickers that I've been designing for that uh, for 2021 supporters of the podcast. And then I have some other stickers that are not podcast related, but uh, possibly generally geek media related that I will also be designing and potentially sending to supporters as rewards down the line once I get that kind of going a little bit more. As I said, I've been weirdly busy. <laughs> I'm trying to find a new place to live. Uh, hopefully we'll be moving soon. So uh, we'll, we'll keep you updated with the podcast as things you need to know do come up. Um, otherwise, if you'd like to find me online besides my uh, Patreon to support it or the website to kind of poke around the things that I have on there, which is some cool stuff, check it out. You can find me on social media. My Instagram is Anna with the comics because that my name is Anna and I have the comics. My Twitter is Savage She Geek because Sensation was too many letters um and that's kind of it right now <laughs> um i don't do a whole lot across social media but i do only post about comics on instagram sometimes my cat and sometimes food so i don't think there's anything there that's really annoying and i do not post regularly <laughs> uh, on the post so i'm not going to be spamming you with stuff also my website has no ads uh, this podcast has no ads, nothing that I do, um, YouTube, none of that is stuff that I make money off of, uh, which is why I've set up the Patreon if, if you would like to support the podcast in any way. That will be the way to do it. Uh, but anyway, I've talked about myself enough. If you would like to skip over the comic book pull list this week and go straight into Loki, please go ahead and jump to about 58 and a half minutes through where we will be wrapping up the pull list and getting into Loki episode uh, 5. I can say 6. That hasn't happened yet. I'm from the future. No. Loki episode 5. You can jump to about 58 and a half minutes through and you will be just about there. For the comic book pick list this week, there are some really exciting things to talk about and there are some less exciting things to talk about at the end there. So, uh, starting off with the things that I am most excited to talk about and going to the not at all excited, but more or less I'm going to have a bitch session about this stuff. We have Wonder Girl number two, Carmen number five of five. We have X-Men number one, new era for them. The Good Asian number three, still fantastic. Mamo number one and Ordinary Gods number one, I was super impressed with as initial indie issues. Sensational Wonder Woman number five, really fun as it has been. Fight Girls number one was kind of fun, but we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. America Chavez Made in the USA number four was meh. And Avengers number 46 was no good at all. So we will talk about those as we get to them. Kicking things off with Wonder Girl number two. Now I did mention on the Monday episode previewing all of this that Wonder Girl is going to be switched off from Joelle Jones doing the interiors to, oh gosh, now I'm blinking on her name. Uh, Adriana Mello is the name there. Adriana Mello being a really phenomenal artist in the vein of Joelle Jones. I would say she did Female Furies. I recommend it. Check it out. Um, I was a little bit wrong about kind of how that was going to work. I don't know if it's the title pages or excuse me, the covers that have the wrong names on them or if it's the solicitations that have the... I'm not really sure what it is, but this issue had interiors both by Joelle Jones, the writer, and Elena... Excuse me, Elena Casagrande is another artist who reminds me of Joelle Jones, uh, and by Adriana Mello. Um, so 
I'm not sure if that's going to switch entirely to being just mellow on the interior while Jones writes, or if they will continue to do this kind of back and forth. Joelle Jones with this issue stuck to her artwork on the Yara floor side of things, where Adriana Mello had her art on the, gosh, it was, it was Hera and Bonnie McDowell and the mascara and the stuff that was not directly Yara floor related. Um, Adriana Mello did all of that art and she did a fantastic job. I am such a big fan of hers. I think if I, I think she'll probably be, this is kind of off track, but she'll probably, Adriana Mello will probably be the, um, the first full blown comic art commission that I ever do. I see her commissions all the time. She does a lot of them and they are so stunning. Um, but anyway, uh, just another reason to check out Wonder Girl because now you have two extremely amazing female artists on the interior. Plus, Jordi or yeah, uh, Jordi Belair is still doing the colors, which, as I said in the last uh, podcast episode, please take some time to appreciate colorists and letters with your comics this week. There's been a few things that I've read personally that they really, really stood out on as being integral, important, and um necessary parts of the issue to make everything kind of work and it's it's something that kind of gets taken for granted by a lot of readers uh, so I definitely encourage you to take some time to appreciate your colorists and your letterers because they do put a lot of work in and a lot of thought in behind the work. Anyway, back to Wonder Girl. Uh, this issue was really, really awesome. It starts off pretty much where the last one ended with Yara having been pulled into the river um, and it tells this story, really beautiful story. I'm not sure if it's based in any kind of cultural realness for a Brazil or anything like that, um, but I would not be surprised if it was because Joelle Jones has really been doing a phenomenal job of making sure that what she's writing for the, her Brazilian side of things here has really captured the um, the real world, what Brazil is like and what the culture is like. And there's been a lot of really amazingly thrilled um, reactions about Yara Floor, the Wonder Woman stuff that she was in, and the Wonder Girl series now. Already people are loving it. Brazilians are all over it. I'm, I'm taking that as a good sign that she is doing an excellent job of doing her research. So I assume that the story that we start off with here, this myth, is somewhat based in uh, real world legends. It basically goes over this woman who, um, uh, through whatever stuff that happens, she ends up being this vengeful mermaid pulling men to their dooms if they get too curious about the the mystical river that she's in. But um, Yara gets pulled to her doom. However, the vengeful mermaid spirit lady um, recognizes her as a kindred spirit because I believe Yara was named for her is what it said. Um, and so she uh, allows her to get, she gives her the bolo whip and allows her to get out of there. Um, and Yara ends up going and the I love I don't know if he's gonna end up being an important character at all but I love there was the bus driver in the first issue and he reappears in this issue oh he he, he is crushing hard on Yara he's he's just a tourist bus driver but this girl has come into his bus and just completely stolen his heart away and I loved how clear and obvious it was that the way that Joelle Jones writes him looking at her is like he is so head over heels for her and he just met her this is it's so cute um don't know if that's gonna pan out to be anything but it's really cute um and so Yara is uh kind of taking a break from her journey because she's had this odd thing where she almost drowned in a river um and she now has some kind of 
extra powers that seem to be awakened. Um, on the other side of things, with Adriana Mello doing the art, we have the Amazons of Banna Migdal, Themyscira, and Hera's people all kind of trying to, um, I guess, get to Yara first, <laughs> uh, because Hera seems to want to crown Yara as her champion, and we're not really sure what that means, except it doesn't seem to mean anything good for the Amazons, the other Amazons. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, even the Brazilian Amazons seem to be trying to track down Yara and stop her from, you know, coming to this, uh, this life that she's supposed to be coming into, her destiny, I guess. Uh, in the end of the issue, we get, I'm not sure if this was on purpose by him or not, but we get Eros, sent by Hera, Eros being her grandson, as the myths go, Eros being the daughter, excuse me, <laughs> the son of Aphrodite, uh, the, one of the little gods of love. He's the one who shoots you with the arrow and you're in love with whoever you look. Well, apparently it's his arrow tip that has some kind of magical power or poison to it. And I'm not sure if this was on purpose, but he scrapes his finger with the arrow that he seems to be supposed to shoot Yara with, um, ends up looking at Yara and falling for her. So that's where the issue ends. I know the cover of the next issue says something about in the clutches of Eros or something like that. Um, so she's going to have to more than likely get away from this clingy, lovey-dovey guy. Um, but again, I'm not sure if he did that on purpose or not, that's a distraction for her, or if that was not part of the plan. I'm not sure, but uh, we'll probably figure that out uh, in the next issue. Carmen wrapped up this week with number five of five. This was Guillaume March's... Uh, child of passion that he has created. It was originally published as a graphic novel in Spanish because he is from Spain. Um, and it was now released under image as five individual comic issues. I'm very curious if they're going to put them back together for the graphic novel or, or excuse me, for the collected edition or what doesn't really matter too much. I'm just curious being the last issue I do have to say this had a really, really great ending. I was very happy with it. Uh, one thing that was kind of surprising was I definitely expected this series as a whole to end pretty much with the reveal of whatever Kata's fate is going to end up being, and that would be it. But this actually went beyond that, showing the effect of this journey that she's just been on, basically, um, how that's going to affect her life going forward and, and if it's going to mean anything and yada, yada, yada. Um, and I'm really, I, I really dig how that wasn't just cut off to let us imagine what she does now. Um, basically what happened was the two other angels who we'd seen in the series, the one who was Carmen's supervisor and the one who was her like co-worker, who are both very critical of how she does things. Um, they get together and they do some digging, um, discover that this is actually not the first time Carmen has done this. And Carmen has actually managed to do the impossible and bring a perished soul back to their own body. The way they describe it is they basically say that they are reincarnated as themselves because reincarnation is supposed to you take the lessons from life, bring them into your next life in your next body. Um, whether you're not going to remember the lessons, but you're going to have that bit of wisdom with you, right? Um, so this, instead of being reincarnated into a separate person or being entirely, there are, uh, this, this one case, Carmen has done this before, somebody was reincarnated back into their own body where they led a better life and brought, you know, they, they soaked up the rewards of, 
uh, what Carmen did to help them through their next life, uh, which was the same life they were just living, just re- kind of reinitiated. Um, the angels themselves, it was very surprising for them to find out because they had always assumed that their job of bringing the dead souls into the white light was pretty much inconsequential and didn't really matter what they did between getting the soul and sending them on to the next life. But now, after all this information, they see that that is entirely wrong. Um, whether we don't really necessarily learn whether it is due to Carmen specifically or whether it's something that she just kind of discovered was a possibility or if it is as they said one of the gods who just kind of um are keen on her um and so they decide to you know give her a shot and it ends up working out it's not really explained how that works it's just something that carmen has managed to do and here she manages to do it a second time with katza which is i my my theories on what the series was going to end like was that she was just going to go off and be, you know, dead or she was going to go and be reborn into a new life. And that was just kind of now she's a baby. OK, she doesn't remember anything. She's a new person, um, but it doesn't go that way. And due to a something about a power surge or outage, um, her roommate ends up finding her body and is able to get the. Uh, EMTs there in time for them to actually save Kata and bring her, basically bring her back to life. Heartbeat had stopped, everything was done, and they're able to reinitiate all of that and bring her back to life. Um, and that's kind of the point there that I thought this series was going to end. This issue was just going to end right there. Okay, she's back. That's all we get. But it continues. <laughs> that was only like two-thirds of the way through it. Um, so the last, the last chunk of the issue of the series as a whole is Kata with her friend Zisco, who is back to being shy about having a crush on her, of course. Um, and she, she, I guess, spends some time in therapy, which is obviously very necessary, as she just survived a suicide attempt. <laughs> um, but after a little while, she starts to kind of remember fleeting bits of her time with Carmen. She seems to sort of remember it as a dream, but definitely knows that these are things that are important that she has to remember and understand what it's about. Um, using all of this little clips of dreams and stuff that she vaguely remembers, she is able to find, miraculously, the engagement ring. If you remember that man who got hit by a car on his way to propose... Um, which is when Kata kind of learns what's going on and what her destiny to get, you know, taken by the white light and go into a next life is and that she's dead really, it, she, she really gets to solidify all those ideas. If you remember that, she's able to find his engagement ring. You remember he dropped, dropped the ring in or the ring rolled into a sewer grate uh, when he was killed and she was able to find that ring and give it to the woman, I believe her name was Maria, who she was, who he was going to propose to. Um, it's kind of like an interesting, um, what is it when, when, it, when a ghost is sticking around because they have something left to do, um, some final thing to finish. It's kind of like that was her, her ghost's final thing to finish. And because she was able to finish that, she is now able to completely move on. After doing this, she doesn't feel, she remember, She still has the memories, but she doesn't feel that they are important or integral to anything about her anymore. She, that, that, that quest has been completed and now she's able to move forward with her life. And that's how the series ends. Um, it's really cute. I think it's a great series. I think that it definitely t teaches you or reminds you 
um, a lot of stuff. And something else that was really interesting about it also, uh, just kind of to add on the end here, the whole thing, part of the reason that Kata was able to come back was because she was not necessarily supposed to die. The sequence of events that led to her killing herself uh, were basically one in a million. Um, and so that was not something that was supposed to happen, but all of those really rare events lined up so that that reality ended up coming to fruition and it was never supposed to, as did the whole, uh, she was supposed to be found before she even bled out, but that didn't come out because it was like a one in 20 something chance that that wouldn't happen. And it didn't. But then of course, um, Carmen is able to kind of change things in the end. The power goes out, the roommate finds her and is able to save her. So, um, I like it. Um, I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who didn't understand it, and that's fine, I guess. Um, but I, I definitely enjoyed Carmen. I think it was a beautiful, beautiful comic. Now let's talk about X-Men number one. Um, really, really, really... Okay, I'm, I was honestly surprised by how much I liked this. Um... Gary Duggan, or excuse me, Jerry, as I discovered it is, Jerry Duggan, um, he's pretty good. I've liked, I loved Cable, you know, he did, I believe it was, he did New Mutants for a little while, I think, and that was fine. Um, uh, it's something else, he's doing Marauders too, that's the other one. Marauders is fine. Um, I believe he's doing Secret Avengers, yeah, Secret Avengers? Savage Avengers, that's what it is. Savage Avengers, uh, you know, with like Elektra and Punisher and Doctor Strange and stuff. Uh, Magic has been in it a lot. Um, so he, he's got a good number of projects. So I was a little bit concerned going into this that this was going to be a like, uh, when you see creators, especially writers, getting so many projects at the same time, good for them, obviously great for them, they're making money. Um, but I start to be concerned that certain projects will start to waver in their quality. And while I don't, I can't really speak for some of the other Jerry Duggan stuff. This was not an issue. <laughs> um, that being said, I'm not sure how much of the plot was Duggan's ideas uh, versus how much of it was like Jonathan Hickman's directing because he's still the head of X and this whole reign of X that we're going through right now is entirely run by him. He's like the director. Um, that's not a good metaphor. He's the principal and they're all teachers. That's the best I got right now for metaphors. Um, so I'm not really sure how much of that is like his direction. Um, but whatever it is, the the combination that they've gotten of Duggan's stuff and Hickman's directing, they've they've got the winner the winning combination. I it's between there's there's definitely parts of it that I can feel are a bit of Hickman's influence, and there's definitely parts of it that fit a lot more under Duggan's humor, if you're familiar with his writing at all. Um, so whatever this combination of who's doing what, obviously Duggan's doing the writing, but Hickman is definitely behind here doing some kind of directing and telling you, this is what the long game is, make sure you get from A to Z somehow. Um, whatever the combination of work that they've got Hickman on here for is they, they've got it. They've got the perfect mix. Um, for the issue itself, for the contents, this is, uh, as far as I can tell, the first time in a while that the X-Men have fought f on behalf of Earth citizens in general, as opposed to whatever they're doing being pretty much just tied up solely in their own interests. Uh, X-Men stuff happening 
and it really worked for me. Um, I honestly can't even remember the last time the X-Men were heroes of Earth and not heroes of the mutant kind or something like that, you know? Um, it's, it's been a while, and I really enjoyed this, surprisingly. The team is pretty great. Uh, I think almost everyone got their moment to shine at some point in the issue. Uh, Sunfire was probably the exception. He did kind of have a moment to shine. It's funny, Sunfire shine. Um, but you kind of had to pay attention to see that in the art where he was doing his thing. Um, the team, basically the main bulk of the team's work in this issue is that they, they get together and fight a giant creature from space. Really cool character design. Uh, fun little beastie boy with tentacles and armor and shit. Um, the X-Men, of course, team up to create an X-Mech. Yes, a mecha. You know, like Transformers or, um, gosh, any of the things. There's so many of them, I don't even know which one to say. Um, so that's really cool. I love mech stories, mecha stories, no matter how, you know, overdone or ridiculous they may be. Uh, and this one was surprisingly, it was, it was funny. I think it was more funny than cool. Um, I don't know. It's, it, it, it looks, I think it's funny because it ended up looking pretty dorky. Their little mecha thing. It's like a fire hydrant almost. <laughs> uh, not little, very large. Um, and they are keeping it in use as a lighthouse for Krakoa until they need to use it as a mech again. And all I can think about that is rust and seawater, but that's fine. They're mutants, so they can, they've gotten over worse. They can get over some rust with their mecha. As, uh, everybody, had a, everybody had limbs to control of. Sunfire was the chest and there was a big X full of flames. So that was clearly him powering it up. Um... I, I very, it was nice. I, I enjoy the mecha stuff. Uh, it's also worth noting, since I have mentioned it about Hickman's writing, um, of the, like, ex of mutant people, I suppose, um, Duggan also did a great job of showcasing the team's powers being useful to the fight in some way or another. The fact that the team can utilize their powers, um, and know how to put themselves together to create, like, the optimum output is really, really excellent writing of teammanship, um, and of friendship and of understanding each other. It was something that Hickman is very, really good at and did several times during his X-Men, uh, strict, you know, strictly X-Men title run. Um, and I'm really happy that they did that again. It was, it was, um, it was nice to see them going through and doing, like, basically doing the math to finding the solution that they need to beat the creature. Um, and the creature ends up, it was sent by what I understand to be a completely new thing, a problem out here in space. It's called Game World. It is a place where if you're rich enough, you can bet on anything. For example, this creature was sent to New York because they were betting on the odds of it killing all the humans. Uh, after it loses, oh, we get to see the big picture of what's going on here. These aliens would like to preserve the Earth as a natural habitat, but they see humanity as destroying it because, let's be honest, we are. Um, so that is why they're hosting these games to try and kill off as much of humanity as possible, if not all of them. It's, it's weird and twisted, but it's a very fun idea. Um, and this, I can imagine this causing problems for a long time. Um, the leader of these alien, uh, folks, I suppose, these alien beings, Cordyceps Jones, uh, he appears to be some kind of 
mushroom or spore creature that grows out of a skeleton. Um, so you got me for design. That's awesome. <laughs> you got it. There is also another villain who is introduced in this issue right at the beginning. His name is Kelvin Hang. He is a former child prodigy who his basically entire life mission was to create life or at least livable space on Mars. So you can kind of see how um, there might be a bit of a problem with him when the X-Men come in and do that in one fell swoop. <laughs> pretty much making a mockery out of his life's work. Um, he had gone very, very far, even as far as to change his body as to become a more adaptable to Marge. Marge, Mars. Um, so seeing the mutants basically just snap their fingers and have it be done, what he's been striving to do his entire life, uh, he, he's gonna, he's not happy. He wants to punish the mutants for this disservice. Um, and I'm not sure what that's going to mean, but he has some really freaky beastie boys being made. Um, they're not living very long yet, but it's kind of like Reavers. He's not the guy who's making the Reavers, right? No, that was somebody else. Um, but possibly he will end up making his own Reavers of some kind, I guess. Um, and that's going to be a problem. So that's two new villains from this issue that we've been introduced to. Um... I'm not really sure if you can consider, I guess, the leader of the gamblers, Cordyceps Jones. He's he's the villain in that situation, whereas they are just the gamblers. I'm not really sure how you would classify that. <laughs> um, but between between uh, Game World and Cordyceps Jones and Kelvin Hang and whatever the heck it is that he's trying to create to, to I'm assuming, kill the mutants, they have several problems added on to what they already had. And as the narration, or rather the white pages noted, uh, the Hellfire Gala, while it did a lot for them, it also was the, was the moment where England took their time to step out of the treaty with Krakoa, um, as well as, I think, several other places after this whole mars Arako thing happened. It says that a lot of other countries and things have started to trust the mutants much less after this basically just up and claiming an entire planet for their Arakan brothers. So, uh, causing problems, but also creating some really excellent plot, let's be honest, for the future. Uh, something I really enjoyed, we have Ben Urich back in the X-Men stuff. I don't know if he's ever done X-Men. I imagine he's been in X-Men before. What I remember Ben Urich uh, mostly for is he is a character who is in uh, Marvel's um, and then, you know, he was uh, live action in Defenders. It wasn't really, or Daredevil, whatever, whichever Netflix show it was that he was on. Um, but it's cool to see he's, he's a very um, recognizable character for seasoned readers. And he had a letter for the Daily Bugle from, you know, from the desk of Ben York kind of thing, talking about the new X-Men stuff uh, that's going on in New York City. Um, and they... I dug in did a really great job of capturing what familiar readers know to be Ben Urich's voice pretty much perfectly. He has a very familiar um, voice and that was spot on for that writing. Um, Urich points out that the treehouse the mutants have built in this other base in New York City is interesting for a number of reasons, which I would agree. Uh, one, it's lack of threatening presence. Uh, two, it's positive additions to the city's natural environment. And three, to my surprise, a statement on racial injustice. 
the treehouse is called Seneca Gardens. It is a park that is free and open to the public, intertwined with Krakoan technology, and it is named after Seneca Village, an area that was seized from largely black landowners to finish the creation of Central Park in the mid-19th century. This is a real story. Um, it's one of those things that kind of got forgot by history on purpose, because you know who writes the history books. Um, <laughs> it's the conquistadors, right? The history books is basically what it is. Um, so very interesting. I'm, I'm happy to see that they've kind of pulled that in here. Um, I, I love that the X-Men team, whoever is the one to thank for this, they've taken the time to make this something not just really cool, but actually meaningful. Um, another thing that I did not realize until this issue is that the mutants aren't telling the world about their newfound ability to be resurrected. Um, I didn't realize that. I guess it kind of makes sense, but I didn't realize that until this issue. The scientist guy, uh, the, the former child prodigy, he is completely infatuated with how on earth did this guy who was a mutant named Joe or Jumbo Carnation, he died. He went to his funeral. He saw him dead, but now he's alive and well. So this guy is poking, is, is about to start poking holes in what it is that's going on with mutant reincarnation. Um, he's probably going to out them about it and cause a lot of problems over it, no doubt, because that is uh, definitely the kind of thing that the general human of the 616 would hear about the mutants doing. Oh, they have reincarnation. They didn't tell us. They kept it to themselves. Hmm. That would sound really skeevy from the point of view of a 616 person that they've been raised to believe the mutants are, you know, secretive and blah, blah, blah. It kind of is. That's kind of true. They are kind of being dicks about, you know, just keeping it to themselves. But also the fact that they can do it at all is because they're mutants. So, you know, this may, it might be a little bit complicated, but it's, it's definitely not going to look good whenever people find out. Uh, finally, the last thing I would have mentioned about this issue of X-Men, the last page of the issue was an ad for people who were feeling displaced or attacked over Krakoa making Mars into a Rocco. Uh, it was an ad for a class action lawsuit being set up by our favorite space lawyer, Blurred. Uh, we saw Blurred before in some very early Jonathan Hickman New Mutants issues that he wrote himself. Um... <laughs> He's the worst lawyer, but he's the, like the only space lawyer. So uh, really, really funny. I'm glad that this is going to continue being a running joke. I hope we see Blurred again, be in an ad for something or in person. I just absolutely adore that. I love running jokes in comics when they get played out really well. And it's been, it's probably been two years maybe since we saw Blurred. I don't know, a year and a half. But um, I, I love that that he's back, even if it's just for this. I think that was hilarious and extremely enjoyable. <laughs> the Good Asian number three. I am still extremely loving the series. Extremely loving the series? Is that proper English? I don't think that was proper grammar. Uh, I'm still loving the series a lot. Um, I really, really, I, I gotta say, I really adore how the history lessons about Chinese immigration to America and Chinese American life like early on in that kind of era um, and everything that the history of it all all kind of plays into the story um, and it's it's all integral to it and it's all I, I just love the ed educational aspect as well as the fictional aspects it's very much a historical fiction comic and I love that um, 
the letterer in this issue, I know I mentioned earlier, pay attention to your letterers and your colorists. The letterer in this issue chooses to differentiate Chinese versus English text by putting the Chinese text in square boxes and English text in round boxes or in round bubbles, I guess. Um, so anytime anybody's speaking, you can tell which language they're speaking based on the shape of their text box or bubble. Um, this issue follows Lucy, who is a person who, um, Edison Hark, the detective, who we follow primarily in the series, he had ran into her, um, he'd run into her at a, at a bar party kind of thing, which was under attack at the time. Um, and so now we are getting a little bit of insight into what's going on with her. Um, she is of course Chinese American herself. Her, her father was a Chinese immigrant. He, she basically takes care of him is what it seems like. And she wants to sing at the Jade castle, which is that bar that got attacked in the last issue. Um, her father of course doesn't want her to because it's dangerous. And she's trying to argue about how, um, well, it's going to continue looking dangerous until we have people coming in again and I have to go to sing to make it look safe again, blah, blah, blah. Um, going back and forth like that a lot. Uh, she, as her job, her normal job, she is a Chinatown phone operator, role that apparently uh, requires memorizing all of the names and phone numbers of people in Chinatown. I had no idea phone operators are a thing of the past, just like elevator operators and things like that. Um, but it's, it's, it's something that at this point in time, I mean, I never know that much about phone operators. Uh, maybe my grandparents prop, but I'm sure they did. I don't know if my parents would have, but I don't know how phone operating works. Apparently you need to memorize all of the names and numbers. That is wild. That's wild. How did you do that? <laughs> um, but anyway, at her phone operator job, you're able to, she's able to, um, between the people working there and the phone calls, it shows, uh, how on this particular day, there has only been paranoia among the calls and the operators over the recent killings and worry about if the Tongs are back and Tongs being the Chinese, uh, American gangs who would be extremely violent. Um, and that in the, have in the past many times caused kind of legal issues with uh, the Chinese immigrants and people trying to get to China or sorry, get to America from China because they were, the tongs were dangerous. They didn't want them to grow. So they blocked off immigration. That's all part of the history that you get uh, throughout this issue. And I really, really appreciate being reminded and or learning of for the first time. Um, so Lucy she is, she decides to help Detective Hark Edison with his search for Ivy, who is the, um, the, the missing girl who he's on the search for. Uh, but that wasn't obvious. <laughs> and she's, she's able to give him a little bit of help by identifying the dress that she's wearing, the same dress that she has, Lucy. And she's able to tell him of the shop, the shop that they would have gotten it from. So at the shop, we get a little bit of backstory on Hark, finally. Um, he's been a bit of a mysterious character. His mother apparently was killed by, um, by some guy when he was young. And the only reason that the police even bothered to find her killer was that there was a rich white man who rose hell about it, her employer. Um, so he basically doesn't want Ivy to be the same as his mother would have been if that man wasn't around to help. Um, people... Uh, they tend to clam up 
especially the Chinese American community in this in Chinatown, people really tend to clam up when they find out specifically that Edison is a detective. They don't trust it, uh, probably for a lot of good reasons. Um, but he's he's trying to work both sides of this world, and it's very difficult with the mis- the, the distrust between them. Um, still, he is able to find out that Ivy's friend Holly who had died in a fire, had a secret stash of cash and film negatives. Um, Later on, Edison gets into an alley fight, which he wins, and the issue ends with him developing those film negatives and finding out that they are pictures of men having sex. So you can imagine that somebody who knew that Holly had these pictures would want Holly dead, and hence the fire. And potentially Ivy would have known something about it, so hence Ivy's disappearance. So this is a really good mystery comic still. Um, I Again, my favorite part of it, though, is the history that ties into it. Any little tidbits about that time period, um, I just love. I, I absolutely, I'm not going to say that we're, <laughs> I wish we would go back to that, because that was clearly all happening because of terrible reasons. Um, but... I think the history of that era is very interesting. I, of course, lived in San Francisco during college, so I'm familiar with the modern aspects of the city and a bit of its history. Um, But yeah, I just, I I love this. It's such a great series. I I just definitely recommend it if you're into any kind of noir film or television or stories of any kind. Now going into some things that I have probably a little bit less of an essay to go on about. Uh, Mamo number one and Ordinary Gods number one were two indie number ones that I I really, really enjoyed. Uh, Mamo a little bit more than Ordinary Gods. Mamo, uh, Studio Ghibli. You know Studio Ghibli, right? Um, and by extension, similar animation styles like Mary and the Witch's Flower, which I started actually last night and didn't finish. I got tired. Um, they have a certain feel to them. And I would also say uh, stuff that I am more familiar with would be uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld books, specifically the We Free Men and the ones that followed after that, um, A Half Full of Sky, etc. Um, there's a certain feeling you get from them where it is kid-friendly, um, potentially supposed to be meant for children, Um, but there is such a background of something is creepy. Um, you get that in all Studio Ghibli movies, something a little bit creepy. It's also something that you get a big vibe of if you go to Disneyland. Um, animatronics, they're cool, they're fun, they make people laugh. Oh god, are they a little bit creepy though. (laughs) And they are everywhere at Disneyland. So there's a little bit of a background of creepiness to all of these things, but they are intended for children. Go figure. But, you know, Mamo being one of these things I would definitely put in that category. So excellent. Um, It definitely plays along if Wes Anderson made a Studio Ghibli movie, this would be it. Or rather comic, this would be it. Um, The pacing, you can practically hear the... um, the wind rustling through the trees. Uh, something my one of my comic shop uh, salespeople, employee, employees, um, mentioned about this particular issue, the series as it starts, um, is that it kind of goes along a trend that I didn't really notice. Um, it's a trend that I've, in a sense that I noticed it, it's things that could be all ages, but are very much um, 
probably more popular with older folks like myself, people who are adults, grown-ass comic readers. Um, but alongside that, what he was mentioning was there's this trend of, well, I noticed in these kinds of comics, at least, a trend of um, very detailed backgrounds with a much looser foreground. Um, and that might kind of sound a little bit backwards, but what that ends up being a lot of the time is nature scenes. Um, another series that I would definitely say goes alongside that is Jonah and the Impossible Monsters. Um, you get this really creative, lush background, but then the characters themselves are pretty simplistic. Um, I would say the same here, Mamo fits into that category as well. And that's, I, I dig it, whether it's a trend or it's just something that is popping up in indie comics a little bit now because of people working on comics more as their projects for themselves and not with a team, which this comic is done by just one person. Sass Mildred, I believe is the name. I don't have it in front of me. I'm sorry if that's wrong. Um, but this, I, I, I credit having a single creator with for all of the goodness of this issue. Um, again, Studio Ghibli vibes. You get a young girl who is worried for her mother who tracks down the village witch who is actually the granddaughter of the village witch who has died. Um, and so she decides to help her. There's clearly something else going on with this, with this young witch. Um, she's a hedge witch. Um, I, I, I love stuff that kind of goes into all of these concepts. It's, I love that so much. Um, and so the hedge witch ends up going with her to her home to try and help her mother. Her mother seems to be under a curse. Um, and so the little sister at the house mentioned something about how there's a scary lady upstairs. The witch goes upstairs and discovers that it's some kind of ghost of her grandmother, um, who is like possessing the house or possibly, uh, has been cursed to haunt the house. I'm not really sure what it is, but it ends very creepily with this enormous ghostly figure kind of coming out and, and saying hello, <laughs> um, not sure where this is going, not sure how many issues are going to be in it, um, but absolutely everything about the feeling of this just felt so, so right um, in that kind of category of the Studio Ghibli Wes Anderson stuff. It, it fits so perfectly in there. You you can feel it as you read it, and I just, I love that. I can't wait for the next issue. Oh, this is also, this is also a 40-issue uh, book, so it's a bit longer uh, I think it was five ninety nine or something, but it was a bit longer, um, and I, I I loved every page. It's beautiful. Ordinary Gods was fun as well. Um, I I remember this one. It's not quite as brightly burned into my memory, but I'm pro I'm definitely going to pick up the second issue. Um, basically, what this is kind of following is it's this world where way way back when there were um, supposedly gods and stuff and. Um, certain gods were trapped on Earth. Earth was created as a prison to hold these gods where they would live human lives alongside the humans and die and be resurrected and die and be resurrected uh, pretty much eternally. Um, and this is their prison. So um, long story short, <laughs> this young man who is a total skeptic about that kind of thing because there's like I guess the mythology of gods having existed on earth and you could be a descendant of one of them. Um, but what kind of seems to turn out is that he and his sister, but not their parents, um, are two of these gods who have been reborn into these young, young children's bodies. Um, the sister ends up killing their parents. 
and before he he doesn't remember anything and she does and so he she kills the parents and he's like in shock um and then basically it ends with you finding out that the goal here is to destroy the earth so that they're free um I don't know. It's just funky. I really liked it. I love the art. I think it fit really, really well. It's just, it's just odd enough for that the mystery of it that hasn't been revealed yet works. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that they don't make us wait too long um, to, to kind of start revealing more of that stuff. They trickle it out to us at a good enough integral that I, I feel good keeping up with this. Um, I don't get bored with it. I, I have faith. It'll be great. Sensational Wonder Woman number five. This is, of course, um, continuing with the 80th anniversary celebration of Wonder Woman. Uh, each issue is a different creative team, although there is only one creative team per issue. So it's all uh, for the primarily female creators, aside from one or two creators total so far, um, who have... They're basically showcasing an aspect of Wonder Woman that they enjoy. I know um, the first issue, I think, was Stephanie Phillips and Megan Hetrick, who I am a fan of both of those creators. Um, it was about uh, Mastermind, or whatever his name is, the little short dude, <laughs> um, how he was trying to take over Wonder Woman's mind and she beat him. And actually, that's kind of funny because that actually happened in the canon Wonder Woman <laughs> recently. So... That's basically just copying the same thing that Sensational Wonder Woman number one did. Whatever. I'm not a big fan of the canon Wonder Woman. I've yet to find a canon Wonder Woman I really enjoy. Um, but yes, this is just generic uh, Wonder Woman stories. This one was about uh, this old woman who had fought with Wonder Woman back in World War II and ended up um, having her tiara and lasso of truth. And so then the old folks home that she's at is, uh, she's being kicked out of it because the lady in charge just cares about money and blah, blah, blah. Um, turns out Wonder Woman purchases the old folks home and, uh, the lady is outed as a fraud with lasso of truth. It's, it's a cute story, nothing integral to Wonder Woman's history, but it's, it's just fun. Wonder Woman stories. Um, my favorite one, if you're going to read any of them, sensational Wonder Woman number two, uh, had a story about Wonder Woman and Artemis. I just, it was, it was very well done. It was extremely good. Fight Girls number one. <laughs> now, this was a fun viewing read, not so much. Um, there are some things that I really liked about this. Um, the fact that you had kind of the constant uh, behind the scenes chatter of get this camera angle, switch to that camera, you know, back out, zoom in, you know, make sure you get that shot. That was really cool. Um, but it also made it feel extremely Hunger Games, um, which a good amount of this issue felt very Hunger Games. Um, I, there's a lot of dissonance between these women are supposed to be the queen of the galaxy and how they are, er, I guess possibly the queen of the galaxy is just a more brutal, uh, role than I'm picturing. Um, but they're, they're all very not queen-like at all. Um, and in the first issue we get down from 10 to six, uh, characters. So, um, supposed to be five issues. I'm kind of curious, like, are we going to have two ho-hum, nothing is really happening issues? I don't know. Um, the other thing I know I had mentioned Frank Cho isn't very good with drawing or including, I should say, characters of color. We did have one, uh, apparently black character and one or two 
seemingly Asian characters. However, I think they died. <laughs> um, one thing that also kind of irritated me by like the third page, every single white character is either blonde or redhead. It just bugs me. I'm sorry. Not every white woman has to be blonde or redhead. I get we love our Jean Greys and Stanley definitely had something for redheads. If that wasn't super obvious with the plethora of them who were who created and wrote. Um, what happened to people just brown, mousy brown haired girls? They exist. But I guess this kingdom just wants either a blonde or redhead white girl or these other, you know... I, I don't know. I... I <laughs> the art was really well done for the most part. Um, his animals, honestly, I loved way more than his female body uh, drawings. Uh, his his like dinosaurs and creatures that he makes, I I liked more than the regular women in it. I, I'll get the next issue. I'll probably get all six or all five if we're being honest, just because it's fun, you know. But I don't know. We'll see if it ends up being quality. <laughs> Finishing off the pick list with America Chavez, Made in the USA number four, and Avengers 46 for America's issue this week. I just, I really can't, I, they, I just feel like they made a bad choice in retconning the fact that she is from space, um, because they just, um, there's a word in my head, diminutive? They made it diminutive. They diminutized. I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but they, they made it smaller. They made her smaller. And I hate that. When uh, you're taking a cosmic being, basically, um, and just making her the outcome of some kind of sort of experiments that weren't really supposed to even be happening. Um, <laughs> what we got pretty much in this issue was the addition of there are many other young girls who were um, going through the same thing that America and her sister were. But after America and her sister escaped, or rather just America escaped, um, she, I guess all the girls, all the little girls except for her sister, like, went into stasis and they're still little girls. <sighs> if you're going to give her more, like, quote, sister figures, you should at least make them closer to her age. Not just going to have these, like, little girls to look after. I don't know, man. I'm just bitter. <laughs> I like my cosmic lesbians. Now she's just a sad earth lesbian who's confused. Well, was confused. And she had to take a serum to remember her past? That, that, what? Why? Why would she have to do that? She wasn't, like, drugged to forget her past. She just forgot. But she has to have a serum to remember? I, uh, whatever. Moving on. Avengers number 46. Not good at all. Um, I just... <sighs> A couple of notes. Correct me if I'm wrong, but did Carol just interact with the woman who stole her Ms. Marvel identity during Dark Reign and nobody seemed to give a shit about it? Because whatever her character's name was, Dark Star, that's not her, um the 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 black outfit with the red with the yellow. Um, I'm blanking on her name. She recently came out in a in a pack or in a, as a figure and nobody really seemed to care. Or possibly they did. I'm not really paying attention to figure stuff right now but um yeah that that that's who she was i believe and nobody really mentioned it it was just kind of weird it's kind of like when um last time clea interacted with umar in the comics who was her mother didn't they didn't make a single mention that they were related not one it's kind of weird um and i'm kind of i'm i haven't been keeping up with avengers 
um, because it makes me unhappy. But um, why is Jason Aaron writing Jen, like, for lack of a better word, a loser? I, 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 <laughs> she's not stupid. He's made the point of showing she's not stupid. Um, but everybody treats her like baby. She, they talk to her in baby speak, practically. Like, it's supposed to be Jen on the inside being smart, but everybody on the outside is basically just interacting with a blank face and there's nothing really translating from what Jen is doing to what Hulk is doing. It's not related. Um, I don't really, I don't really get it. It seems like Jen isn't in control. Maybe. I don't know. Also, they turn her into red she Hulk literally. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. They start the fucking issue with the taking and breaking of Jennifer Walters. Now, that is bad, straight up bad writing. That is a fact. That is lazy, poor writing. Um, I believe it was uh, either Leah Williams. I think it was Leah Williams who had come out in an interview and said something about how um, if I cannot think of a way to move a character forward aside from torturing them, I know that I have not done a good enough job and I will work to avoid that because that is lazy to be frank. It is completely lazy. You want to develop this character and the only way that you can come up with that happening in any kind of sense is by torturing them. Also, also, on top of that, um, I'm sorry, but the whole reason Jennifer looks the way she does now is because she was already broken. She was taken by Thanos. She was in a coma, basically dead for a long time. She woke up to discover that her cousin, the only other person like her who she could connect with, had been murdered by her former teammate, Hawkeye. We know this. She she still has PTSD from being fucking almost killed by Thanos. She basically was killed by Thanos. She watched Rhodey get a hole punched in his chest. Like, come on. And you're saying that she needs to go through more shit to develop? I'm sorry, but no, you're wrong. And this is bad writing. Straight up bad writing. Also, they turn her into Red She-Hulk in this. And that is a role that is already taken by Betsy Ross, who is currently Harpy in Immortal Hulk. Also, currently in Immortal Hulk, she is doing other things with her cousin, Bruce. And not- she has left the Avengers. And Al Ewing's Immortal She-Hulk was a one-shot that was really great. It had her headed in a completely different direction, which is what we're seeing play out in Immortal Hulk right now with her. Where the shit is the continuity here, guys? I swear this feels just like more writers at Marvel trying to outdo each other's or overdo or undo each other's work. I am so tired of it. It's lazy. It's problematic as hell. Um, it's uh, uh, repetitive because we've seen this. And it's pointless. And honestly, it's just really, it's just not good. It's, it's genuinely bad writing and it's extremely bad plot ideas. And that goes without even mentioning the fact that they're calling this arc World War She-Hulk when the Avengers were the instigators in World War Hulk, so they're just using that title for no reason. It's not at all related. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Let's talk about Loki episode five. Um, obviously gonna spoil the heck out of this, as I always do. Uh, if you have not seen the episode and you don't want it spoiled, please don't listen to this. 
because I will be spoiling it, and there is a lot to be seen and enjoyed, so please watch it before I spoil it for you. Okay, uh, now that we've gotten over that, this episode was titled very appropriately Journey into Mystery. Um, Journey into Mystery was the, you know, series where Thor and Loki were first introduced, and it's kind of the title that they use on a, you know, somewhat often basis to tell stories involving them, basically. Um, so that's, it's, it's a nice, uh, appropriately titled episode. Um, as we ended in the last episode with the post credit scene, we start meeting Kid Loki, Alligator Loki, Classic Loki, and Thor Loki, who, if I'm not mistaken, was called, like, Bold Loki or something. Uh, Kid Loki is their king. They are dissenters of the Loki Empire, which is, like, the rest of the Lokis who are in this, like, region. Uh, we learn that or either the group of them come together and learn that all the Lokis were supposed to be killed by Thanos, so either their next event was them not being killed by Thanos, or it was something else that they did before that time came to surpass, came to pass, where they um, did something that they weren't supposed to do um, and got taken off the time stream that way. So now we get the more or less backstories to these particular Lokis and how they have kind of come to be in this place. So the classic Loki is played by Richard E. Grant. He did a phenomenal job. I was beyond impressed. Um, just really, really great work from him. Uh, it's a, he said at one point in the episode that he cast a titan, uh, says, I cast a projection of myself so real, even the mad titan believed it, then hid as inanimate debris. So basically what happened was he hid when the ships got destroyed after tricking Thanos into thinking that he killed him. Um, and then with everybody else thinking that he's dead, he went off to a remote planet and just kind of stayed there by himself for a very, very long time. As soon as he decided to go find Thor, though, and got up to leave the planet, the TVA showed up um, to take him here. So that that um, that beginning part about how he tricked Thanos into thinking that he killed him, that brings up a lot of theories that may tie back into our original Loki, OG Loki's story potentially continuing in the MCU. So now we know, although we did see him die, we do know that there was a reality where there was a projection cast that was so real, even Thanos believed it. So potentially we could have believed it as well. Um, and that could have been what happened. We'll have to just wait and see. Uh, Kid Loki, very simple. He killed Thor. I don't think we're ever going to get much more of an explanation than that. Uh, the Thor Loki, who was like bold Loki or whatever, he's played by Diobia Opari, Opare, um, and he claims that he defeated both Iron Man and Captain America and then took all six Infinity Stones. And nobody believes him. They all, oh, boastful, that's what he was. He's boastful Loki. They all think that he's making this stuff up to sound good. Um, and that will tie into what happens with him in a little bit. Then there is Alligator Loki, which, yes, Alligator Loki. <laughs> uh, apparently, there was a brief line where, um, I believe it was Classic Loki translated that he is here because he apparently ate the wrong neighbor's cat. And I can't help but think Agatha. I, I, there's no reason to, but I just, you know, it might be fun. It's potential, of course, also that we're going to see any number of these Lokis appear in the What If series, which is going to be in August, and we will talk about that in a little bit as well. Um, obviously, overall, Alligator Loki was the best part of this episode. 
I don't care who you are. If you disagree, you're wrong. Alligator Loki was the best part of this episode. He stole the show. There is that clip in the episode where Mobius is hugging Loki before he takes off. And he looks at Lady... Or it's Sylvie. He looks at Sylvie and he says... Or he says to Loki, you know, whatever he says. He hugs him and looks at Sylvie and says, you're still my favorite. And somebody made a very appropriate um, edit of that where it's actually him saying that to uh, Alligator Loki. Which I would agree. Alligator Loki is now my favorite character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't know how they managed to... I read a little bit of behind the scenes, so I don't know a little bit how they managed to make him look so perfect. And that was they were going to make him a little bit cartoony original, originally. Um, and the reason they picked an alligator was because they're green. That was literally their only reason. Uh, they thought maybe they would have to justify it. And then they're like, screw it. We'll just do alligator Loki and people will just have to roll with it and it'll be funny. And it was. Um, and what they said also was that the, the, the less cartoony they made it look and the more realistic the funnier it became um so they basically just ended up with a real looking alligator it was cgi'd in there there is no alligator they had an alligator stuffed animal on set apparently it was very dramatic um ha 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 okay but yeah loki (laughs) they they would do like you know how you know somebody's talking and you get reaction shots from everybody in the group they would actually go down and you would get a reaction shot from alligator loki which would just be alligator face Sometimes he would blink. <laughs> um, he growled a couple of times. Uh, he then moves on to... We'll get there in a second, because it was really funny. Um, but we find out, basically, this dimension is the end of reality, where the Time Variance Authority dumps all of the things and people that they wipe from existence. Places, people, things, you name it. Anything unwanted by the TVA ends up here. There were so many Easter eggs. I'm... I'm sure I missed some of some of them, even though um, with everything I did see, I'm sure there was a lot more. Um, there was, let's see, the dimension is terrorized by a creature called Alioth. Alioth, I, I already forgot how to pronounce that, um, which destroys pretty much everything that it touches and like ends your existence or kills you. I'm not really sure which one of that would be. Um, Alioth is a trans-temporal being from the comics that destroys everything it touches, so pretty much the same as what we see here. And uh, is also has interacted with Kang in the comics, apparently, more than once. So that just leads to more speculation that we will be seeing Kang in this final episode. Uh, the first appearance of Alioth was in Avengers, the Termina- Ter- Terminatrix objective number one which was an extremely 90s looking comic from 1993. (laughs) Can't say it's any good quality. It was the 90s. Uh, So this dimension, it turns out, is while we, while Kid Loki calls himself the ruler of this dimension, it is more or less resided over by President Loki, (laughs) who you would recognize from the Vote Loki comics that nobody liked at the time, except for a handful of people um, that have now skyrocketed in price. They were literally dollar bin comics like two months ago. Uh, It's crazy stuff how that happens with the industry. And President Loki here in the series is followed by a gang of various Lokis, including what appeared to be a motorcycle Loki. Instead of horns, he had handlebars. So whatever that one was, it was funny, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, Thor Loki, or rather boastful Loki, ends up betraying the group, um, the dissenters. And President Loki and his gang show up and try to fight them all off. Uh, and that is when my favorite young lad, Alligator Loki, bites President Loki's hand off. 
Meanwhile, back at the TVA headquarters, Ravona Renslayer, who was the judge, uh, Gugu and Buthura, if you do not recall, she uses the little, <laughs> the little AI, I guess, Miss Minutes, to try and trick Sylvie into getting trapped by basically telling her all this stuff about how, I want to know too, I want to help you find all this stuff, and then she, she, uh, she tricks Sylvie into getting trapped. Uh, Sylvie figures out what that whole end of the universe thing is and what happens when you get, you know, zodded by your little, um, by those staff things. There's a word for it they use, I can't remember. Um, and so she ends up basically just doing it to herself to escape at the last second and ends up in the dimension of Loki's, which is really this, uh, this, this place at the end of time and space. Um, there was an interesting scene between Ravona and Hunter B-15, who was the, um, Oh gosh, the main character's sister in Lovecraft Country. Uh, I want to say it's like Rose or something, but I think I'm wrong. Um, I, there was an interesting scene between the two of them because she, B-15, is in prison after having been uh, encountered Sylvie and remembering all of her memories. So she is in prison right now. Um, and Ravona comes in and has this little talk with her for a brief minute or two. B-15 seems to know more than just what her own past was because her her demeanor was very, I know something you don't know, um, very villain-esque. And I, I, I have this theory and I know it's really out there, but I'm just going to put it out there in case it ends up being anything of worth. Um, I, I still have my theory that I think possibly Hunter B-15 might be a variant of Kang. We know there are Kang variants because there's multiple versions of him. We know that he's lived a very long time, so there's multiple versions of him throughout his own history. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a lame theory, but, you know, it could work in technicality. Just saying. <laughs> anyway, back with Sylvie. When she arrives in this place, right, she finds Mobius, first off, who found a car, and the two of them quickly learn about Alioth, which was um, a, a, a fun little factoid that we'll get to when we get to the Easter eggs that we'll talk about. Um, eventually, they run into our version of Loki, of course. They reunite with him, and they meet his new friends, who all of them are now on the run from the other Lokis, uh, theoretically. <laughs> I love the bits again. Alligator Loki running alongside them. You get you get to see them running, and then you get the shot of him running too. It's and what's even great about this is is Mobius at one point even says like, "How do you know that he's a Loki?" And they're like, "Well, you know, we don't really know, but isn't trick pretending to be a Loki like the Lokiest of things to do?" And <laughs> so this could literally just be some alligator who is wearing a Loki hat for some reason. <laughs> Uh, but I like to believe it is Alligator Loki. I think that's appropriate. Um, especially when we're talking about multiverses, which we definitely are in this context. Anyway, so the Lokis meet up with the other Lokis and Mobius. Uh, Loki is thrilled to see Loki. <laughs> Loki's thrilled to see Sylvie. They do a little bit more of the trying to push a touch of romance. Um, it doesn't work for me. I don't see the two of them having romantic chemistry. They honestly feel like siblings who have reunited more than anything else, and it just feels off to have them together. And I know that there was somebody who wrote an essay about how that was closeted transphobia to think that. That relies on the idea that I think of Sylvie as a male version of Loki, or a female version of uh, male Loki, which 
is not the case. She was born female. She's, you know, she's her own person. Clearly she has her own name. She's made that very clear. She is her own person. Um, I just, I think that they're more like siblings because they're the same person. So wouldn't that be more like siblings, twins than anything else? I don't know. Uh, I just don't really like the romance part of it. It doesn't fit. Okay, so Mobius, um, they do a whole talk about what their plan is going to be. Mobius ends up being able to make a doorway back to the TVA. That's when he gives Loki a hug goodbye. He says he's going to burn the TVA to the ground. Everybody else stays to help enchant Alioth. Yes, that's right. Alioth. Why? Uh, it guards, apparently, whatever is behind this end of time slash end of the universe, which is more, most definitely it's whoever set all of this up and the TVA up. Um, so unfortunately, uh, it does take classic Loki helping create an entire, a distraction of an entire enchanted Asgard to distract Alioth long enough for Loki and Sylvie to be able to enchant it, but of course not before it does kill classic Loki. So he has a nice little, like, goodbye of showing how badass he is and then getting taken out mid-battle or whatever. So it works. Uh, however, Loki and Sylvie do ma manage eventually to get it enchanted, Alioth, uh, and get it to move out of the way of whatever's behind it. And there they see a mystical doorway into an unknown realm where there is a very new Schwanstein-esque castle uh, waiting among a ungodly sky of rainbows and space shit. I'm sure it's quantum-esque somehow. Um, and just brings in a whole other thing about this could definitely be Kang because that looked quantum as hell and, you know, quantum mania is where we're confirmed seeing him next. Um, also, earlier on when Sylvie touched Elios' mind when she first arrives, she had a barely there quick little blip of a vision uh, which if you go back and look, it was this big bad castle that we just see now up close. Um, and it pans up to there being something glowing at the top of it. So that is probably some kind of history of the castle being created or whatever its history existing ends up being. Um, on that note, this is probably Castle Limbo. Um, it was introduced in Thor number 282 as the home of Immortus. Immortus is a version of Kang, so once again, this is probably when we're going to see Kang. And to just add to that, we already know that Kang has been cast. He's been cast as well as announced for um, being in Quantumania, which is going to come out in 2023. That's a long time away. They've already announced Jonathan Majors, who him, he himself is actually from Lovecraft Country as well. They've already announced that he's playing Kang. He's been cast for almost a year now, as we've known, so certainly longer than that in reality. Um, the only reason I can really think of them doing that, you know, three years in advance, before they even start filming Ant-Man and the Wasp, which they did this year and he's been cast since last year, um, to put him in something sooner, which, you know, makes sense that it would be Loki because everything is kind of turning out that way. We even know that Mephisto is going to be in Multiverse of Madness that comes out next year and we have no, absolutely no casting information about him. So having a, having Kang being cast and announced for a movie that's a year pro after that, but we've learned it, gosh, a year basically, if we're going to find out Mephisto tomorrow, so let's say, it'd be a year prior to that that we discover who Kang is. There's a two-year difference. It's wild. I think I've got that right in my head. You get what I'm trying to say here. 
it makes sense that they would have cast Jonathan Majors in advance to put him in this because they were filming this at that time. So just, just saying. Okay, so now some of the Easter eggs that we had in this episode. There was a lot. I'm sure I missed them. Uh, we have Throg in a jar reaching to- towards Mjolnir. Uh, this is not them saying that Throg is dead. Obviously, this is just one version of Throg. Uh, there is the Thanos copter, which comes from F- Spidey Super Stories number 39, which I purchased yesterday, five minutes after um, James Gunn tweeted about it, because you know as soon as he tweets about a comic that's like a collectible comic, it's going to skyrocket in value. So I bought it as soon as I saw that to avoid that. Uh, still paid $100 for it, but it goes for roughly a quarter more than that. So I got a pretty good deal and it's going to look like a good issue. Um, Thanos Copter, yes, it is a real thing from the comics. They're not canon comics. The issue is Spider-Man and Hellcat taking down Thanos with the Infinity Cube. It's ridiculous. It's not canon. It's from the 70s. I believe it's from 77. Um, and I'm so happy to add it to my collection. But anyway, the Thanos copter was one of the things that was a Easter egg for this episode. There was also the statue of the living tribunal. I missed it. I had to look that one up later and see when that appeared. It was apparently in there. I missed it at some point. Um, a few other little behind the scenes factoids about this episode. The version of Avengers Tower that we see here in this, uh, realm was apparently owned by Kang Enterprises, Q-E-N-G, um, in a company that bought it from Stark in the comics. Q-U-N-G was run by Mr. Griffin, who turned out to be a ver- another version of Kang from the comics. Just a fun little thing there. Also, um, apparently, Throg was originally going to be beating up Loki in the first episode of the show, but the scene was cut. So I really hope that we get that behind the scenes, somewhat finished CGI version of that. That would be stupendous. <laughs> and finally, um, about that Navy vessel that dropped into Alios Paths path first when uh, or when Sylvie and Mobius first encounter each other, um, and they see Alios completely decimate it and all life on board. Apparently, and I got this from an article, so I'll just read this. It says, The Navy vessel that drops into Alios' path is a USS Eldridge, which was in service during World War II in the real world. It was at the center of the Navy's alleged 1943 Philadelphia experiment, in which it was supposedly rendered invisible and teleported, according to what seems to have been a post-war hoax. Maybe that's not the case in the MCU, where such an experiment seems more likely where the hoax was actually the TVA coming in and zapping it out of existence. (laughs) That's kind of funny. Uh, Just like that, Loki was that um, master thief or whatever he was from the first episode as well. That was a cool reveal. So that was the episode. I really enjoyed it. Um, It was about 50 minutes long. So we are still looking at a potentially hour plus finale episode this coming Wednesday, which if you are interested in hearing me talk about it, I will talk about it next Friday July 16th, assuming that I do an episode on that day because I could possibly be moving. I will keep you updated as time goes forward, but uh, really, really enjoyed this episode. It was not nearly as much of a snooze as episode like three or whatever was. Um, this this was awesome. And I, Alligator Loki, favorite character of the MCU, period. Before we wrap up this glorious Friday episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the What If trailer, which premiered yesterday online. I definitely recommend you watching this trailer several times if you can. 
Um, it's going to be 10, finally officially announced, 10 episodes starting on August 11th. It's about a month away, which means that once Loki is finished next Wednesday, we will have a little bit less than a month of not too much happening for MCU projects. However, we will have the Loki after show the Wednesday after. So it's really only about three weeks that we'll be going without a new MCU product on Disney Plus. So that's kind of cool. Um, if, if you like the plethora of MCU stuff, I guess. <laughs> if not, it must be a nightmare. <laughs> uh, what if, if you're unfamiliar with the concept, it is a comic book anthology series that debuted in 1977 originally to go over all of the, um, questions, the what ifs, what if this had happened instead of that? What if this person had arrived on time? What if this person had never made this choice? What if they hadn't gotten married? What if this person had gotten the infinity stones, etc. Um, one of the things that I really love about it is if you look back at why Marvel started the what if series, um, I believe there are even some statements on Stanley that you can find, um, on video where he's talking about how it what if is entirely meant to um to kindle that spark of creativity that readers have when they read comics you know you always think about the speculation you think about your ideas of what might happen and then when you get through to it you think of what might have happened um and that was according to everyone at marvel that has always been one of their cornerstones is creativity thinking outside the box um, and just asking what if, and that's a huge part of comics in general. So that's very exciting. Uh, we've known that this is a coming for quite a while. One thing I have to say, it's a little bit odd that they've chosen to make it all kind of video game animation. I'm sure we'll get used to it, and I'm sure in context it'll probably work out a lot better than what we saw in the trailer. Um, but it is it is it is a bit odd looking <laughs> for the trailer. This show is going, all 10 episodes will be, uh, quote unquote, hosted or narrated perhaps by the Watcher, Uwatu. The Watcher is a, he's a member of a species of beings who watch the universe. They are tasked with watching and paying attention and witnessing, but never interacting. Um, and he will be voiced by Jeffrey Wright, who you might recognize from Westworld, The Hunger Games, James Bond, or a plethora of other great things. He's got a sultry voice. <laughs> uh, I really enjoy it. So, um, and I'm excited to see The Watcher showing up in the MCU in some way, because this is still technically the MCU. Uh, some of the things that we know we will be seeing in the What If series, we know that there is something about... Um, Oh gosh, there's, I believe, Spider-Man Doctor Strange, there's uh, Marvel Zombies, we know is a really big one, there is um, Captain Carter, as opposed to Agent Carter, where she is Captain America, uh, there's some things where Killmonger is uh, Black Panther and T'Challa is a Reaver, I believe, is what that is, Reaver, are they Reavers? Reavers are an X-Men, Ravager. Ravager, that's the one. Um, too many R villains, man. But anyway, uh, what if seems like it's going to be a total um, just creativity boom? I can see people watching this and wanting to write comics themselves and wanting to create things more than ever. Um, so it's, it's going to be successful. You can pretty much guarantee that. And it's going to be funky. And I'm excited for whatever weirdness they have to show us. 
And that wraps up today's Friday episode of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. As I said at the beginning of the podcast episode, first of all, thank you, of course, for listening to whatever amount of podcasts that you do listen to. I do have a Patreon set up now. If you would like to support the podcast, you can put in whatever amount of money you would like to on a monthly basis. Whether you think this is worth the entertainment value of a comic, of a TV show, of a subscription to something... Whatever you feel is appropriate, um, that is something that I've set up just to enable me to hopefully be able to focus more on the podcast and less on real life work and jobs. Otherwise, you can find me online at sensationalshegeek.weebly.com um, or you can find my social media Twitter, or Twitter is Savage SheGeek, Sensational with too many letters, and Instagram is Anna with a comics. Thank you again for listening to my podcast episode. Today is a new moon, so take some time to... Uh, cast out what no longer serves you and make plans for what you would like for the coming month. Um, Otherwise, it's quite hot where I am, so stay hydrated, stay cool, and always, always get sweaty about comics.